everyone, and welcome to Revolución, a Hispanic Heritage Month 2022 virtual event presented by Celso, first infused beverage inspired by Mexican flavors and culture. I am your host, Rafael, a.k.a. The Latin Babbler, and our guest today is a Golden Globe and Emmy-winning Academy Award-nominated actor and director with a career that spans over 30 years in the entertainment industry. He is also the founder and board chair member of the coveted Los Angeles International uh, or Latino International Film Festival. Welcome to the show, Mr. Edward James Omos. Rafael, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Like I said, I am extremely humbled, extremely uh, uh, honored uh, to be in this conversation with you. I've been watching uh, a lot of your career. Um, it's been an inspiring part for us Latinos that you've paved the way and opened the door in so many ways. Um, I wanted to start, though, because we always go into like the the discovery side. And I'm, I'm always curious as to what or who Edward James almost was as like a young person. I mean, how did you grow up and what inspired you to go into acting? Uh, it was a process. I didn't come out of my mother's womb saying to be or not to be you know, <laughs> that way. Um, it was a situation where uh, I started off uh, really playing baseball. You know, like a normal kid, I was born in East L.A. in the Barrio of East L.A. in Boyle Heights. And uh, it, it kept me out of a lot of trouble. And, and, and uh, I started so young, four, four and a half years old when I started playing. And uh, but I played it every day and it took up all my time, extra time that I had between going to school and doing chores and doing everything else. I'd still I'd play every single day, seven days a week. And I went from not being able to catch the ball at all, not knowing anything about the game, to playing the game really well. And by the time I was 14 years old, I had gotten to the point where um, <clears throat> through discipline, determination, perseverance, and patience, I, I became uh, really good. I became the best that I could be at that moment in time after playing it for like seven or eight years every day, seven days a week. And you get really good. You ask any musician, you ask any any person that really has completed, had a completion in, in fulfilling their passion and their understanding. They, they have to do it every day. They either read about it or they talk about it or they they do it, you know, or they watch people do it. And But they're, they're always inside of that dream. And um, I, about at 16, I got, I mean, at 14, 1960, I got out of baseball and went into uh singing and dancing and uh, I started performing in the rock and roll band and the rock and roll band led me into um, uh, college and when I was in college uh, I was continuing to sing and dance but I took an acting class to get myself to become a better performer on stage and so um, um, and it worked you know I I was doing the acting classes at East LA Community College and then I went ahead and uh, and uh, continued to sing at Gazars on the Sunset, Sunset Strip, which I performed there for four years, seven nights a week. And, uh, you know, it was that whole situation where if you, if you discipline yourself to do the things you love to do and you don't, and you do, and you do them when you don't feel like it, you get really good at what you're doing. So that's what I did. And, and I went into acting and then it was, so it was music and dancing and, and theater and all of it kind of evolved over years and then of doing it every day. And um, I got to a point where I was ready when the opportunity came and that's luck. Okay. Luck is when opportunity meets uh, preparation. 
when you're prepared for the opportunity and you hit it, boy, you're lucky. Okay. I got I got and a question about baseball. What position did you play? I played everything. I, I got to a point where I could play every position, and I did. I pitched, I catched, I played second, first, shortstop, third base, all the fields. I even coached, uh, and uh, you know, and I was a young little kid, and uh, but I played the game so well that uh, they could see that I was destined. My father, everyone thought I was destined to be a professional ball player, and at that moment in time, I, I was nothing could have made me happier than to be a professional ball player. But I'd, like I said, about the age of about 10, uh, say in 1956, 57, I, I, um, I, I started listening to rock and roll music. And I started watching, uh, you know, I was watching like uh, Little Richard and James Brown and Elvis Presley and, and uh, different people that were on the Ed Sullivan show performing. And, um, and I, I really appreciated the music. And uh, I would listen to KFWB, which was the rock station then at that time in the early 50s. And it was the first rock station we had in Los Angeles. And then from then I went on to, uh, you know, to use music, movement, dancing, storytelling in, in theater and in, in singing. And then went on to do Zoot Suit in 1978. And uh, that opened up everything. And after that, it was all over. I just kept on going from there on out. So I guess from the time, from that time to now, what do you see as a difference for the process, especially for Latinos who are pursuing acting roles, like from when you first started the auditioning mm -hmm. process? Is it, is it, I know, cause we are in the zoom age, everybody can kind of do stuff online. What was that process like back then? It, it was different. It was more, uh, um, there was a, a road to take if you really want to be a professional in anything. And that's to either uh, understand at the point of doing it, or understanding by by doing it and studying it, or understanding by doing studying and actually, um, um, you know, you spending all your time in it and uh, the persistence and determination would push through. And and really today, um, if you really want to do this, you can do it. Uh, I had no natural gifts in playing baseball. I had no natural gifts in playing music. I had no natural gifts in playing, uh, doing, being an actor. Um, I disciplined myself to do the things I love to do when I didn't feel like doing them. That was my key to my success. You know? yeah. and, and I did that by doing things that I didn't like to do so that I would have the discipline to do the things I like to do when I didn't feel like doing them. All that works. That's a good way of putting that. Yeah. And, and it works, you know, and people say, well, what, what are you talking about? I go, well, look at, for instance, um, you have to do chores. You have to do all kinds of stuff around the house to help the family. And, and you got to, you know, at the time we, we were, you know, had to help clean the yard and clean the kitchen. You know, it was always stuff that had to be done in, around. You had, you, had, uh, you had to do them. So I would do them. Even though I didn't feel like doing them, I would do them. And a lot of kids don't. A lot of kids say, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to do that. It's too, it's too that. tough. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever excuse you want to use, they use it. And they don't start to flex and understand their discipline. If you start to use your discipline, then you start to get stronger in it. And the stronger you get, the more opportunity you're going to have to discipline yourself to do the things you love to do 
when you don't feel like doing it. And those are the moments where you really grow the most. Because that, to me, was the essence of life. It's just to, not to be better than anybody else. I never tried to be better than anybody on, in anything. But I did try to be the best that I could be. And that was it. I just wanted to be the best that I could be at whatever it is that I was doing. And it turned out that my best in baseball was really good. I mean, my best became the best. I, I was California batting champion for two years in a row. Really? Yeah, in California, yeah, in uh, Little League. And uh, I was really, really good at playing the game. And everybody thought I was going to go on. I was catching Eddie Roebuck and, and playing with Bobby Knopp and Gary Knopp. And, and Knopp brothers went on to become really beautiful baseball players. And Bobby became the manager of the Angels. And the great people. And I was playing with them when they were, they were older. They were like 16, 17, 18 years old. And I was 12, 11, 12, 13. And I was a little kid. I wasn't at all the size that I am today, 5'9", 5'10". I wasn't then. I was a little guy. And so, but I kept on doing it and I became very good at it. And then, so when I stopped that, everybody said, what are you doing? But I had learned that I could do anything. Through the baseball, yeah. Yeah. I said, if I could learn to play that well, that game, nothing could stop me. Especially from scratch, because like you're saying, it was something that you had to learn the game. That level you realize, then you say to yourself, okay, well, what else do I feel like passionately doing? Yeah. Dancing. I felt like moving. I felt like singing. And I did that. And then I went on to do acting. And then with acting and and music and movement and all of a sudden I was doing, you know, it all came together. And I was doing acting, singing, dancing, performing, uh, comedy, performing uh, drama in one play, Zoot Suit. And, and it shot me right through the roof. And from that moment on, I, I then became what I am today is, is a person who uses storytelling by way of film and television. And uh, and I still do theater, but it's harder for me to do theater because it, it takes so much time. And ends up happening. I don't have the time to really apply myself to where it needs to be. And that is in film. Film to me, I think is the art form that most needs our help. Okay. Okay. People say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean your help? You mean you, you want to become a star? You, you got into movies so people would look at you and say, no. I got into movie making to tell stories. And I made those stories about me and my my culture and myself, you know, and uh, where I I never saw any of those stories when I was growing up. There wasn't one movie that had anything to do with Chicanos ever. Okay, I think we did the very first one. And uh, again, that that you have to realize how important art is in order to understand your life in, in today. Art is the single most definitive part of the human psyche. What I mean is this. Art is like the backbone in the body. The backbone is a really very, very delicate and very, very important part of the whole system of of yourself. If you break the first or second bone in the backbone, you're going to be running into a lot of trouble. You might even become uh, paraplegic. Paralyzed, yeah. Okay? But if you third, fourth, or fifth one, you're quadriplegic. You can't move anything. So yeah. the messages from the brain don't get through to the rest of the body. So the backbone is so important because it it takes protects 
all the messages that are going through your body everywhere. So when I started to think about this, I said, well, the arts are like the backbone of humanity. They, it protects the culture, it protects the identity, it protects uh, individualism and freedom and everything. It, it exposes everything and allows you to create everything. That is and, true. And, and so the arts. Now, you personify that by going into certain arts like dance or music. Music is like phenomenal music. And you play some songs and they spread all over the world and people are singing and dancing them or, or listening to them and really appreciating them. And, um, and, and it, it speaks to the very nature of humanity. Now, film and television, especially film, film is like the most powerful art form that's ever been created by humankind. I'll say that again. It's the most powerful, real powerful uh, understanding that's ever been created by humans. What I mean by that is that when you sit down in a theater and you have no peripheral vision and you're sitting in a dark room, and the screen lights up, and it's a huge screen. If you go see IMAX, you get the real impact. Yeah, I, I always go IMAX. You, the, sound, <laughs> the sound is all the way around you. And with that sound all the way around you, you're completely immersed inside of the experience. The, the projector goes on, and you're watching, and all of a sudden, everything that you're looking yeah. at. Yeah, it's almost like you're feeling it. You're right there. You, yeah, you go, It goes into your conscious mind. And more than that, it goes into the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind records everything. It's like a computer. Now, most of us are not smart enough. We, our IQs are not high enough. Our ability to use the brain is not that well equipped that we can recall everything we've seen. But there are some people who can't. They literally have, you know, photographic memories. They, they see something and boom, they got it. They go, what do you mean you got it? Yeah, they can, you know, recite the whole Declaration of Independence. Without, you know, because they, they read it. Well. I know a few of those. <laughs> yeah, I do And those people are like, awesome. They leave you yeah. mind blown. It's, yeah, it's like, mean, how do you remember I, that? I have dyslexia, so I, I can't even get involved in, in any of that. But yeah. at, the, at the same time, so now you're sitting there, you're getting all this information. And that, to me, is the key. Once it goes into your brain and into your subconscious, just because you can't remember it, it's in there. So when you go to sleep and your conscious, subconscious mind doesn't sleep and never sleeps, from the moment it's awakened in the, the beginning of the first trimester inside the womb, your brain clicks on and it starts to help you know, the body grow. And, and once it clicks on, it doesn't click off until, well, you're brain dead. If you go brain dead, then it just the machine has stopped. But it doesn't. Uh, and even when you're awake or asleep, your brain is always working. And so that's why you have dreams. And that's why a lot of people can't go watch certain films because they have nightmares. And so basically, that medium was real important. And, for, and I was a storyteller. I was Like I said, I was singing songs. And I would tell stories in two or three minutes. You know, now I was telling stories in half an hour and in two hours and in three hours. And so that's what I've been doing. And I continue to do that. And I've tried to govern myself in understanding how to 
act in movies, how to direct, how to produce, how to distribute, how to edit, how to compose, uh, you know, for, for movies, uh, how to, you know, every aspect of the industry of filmmaking I have learned. And in some of these cases, I'm real good at it, real good. In other cases, I, I know enough to be able to know who to pick to get me to a higher level of understanding in whatever we're doing. So that's the key. The key is to know enough about the structure you're inside of so you can not only do it yourself, but you can also find a collaborative people that, that respect you and that you respect them. And, and you do that by understanding the craft, whatever it is. So I did that and now here I am. Yeah. Boy, I just, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm 75 years old, Raphael, and I Red know missing. I look good, dude. I know I look good, but <laughs> I'm an old guy. That's good. That's good. I'm an old hey, guy. One of the coolest things that I, I've heard about you is uh, how you manage uh, your career. And you wanted to make sure you have creative control. And I think it's so important for, for actors, especially in this day and age, anybody who's doing, you know, content creation to have control. There was an instance where you were offered the role. Now, for people who weren't paying attention, Miami Vice was like a huge thing back in, back in the time. Lieutenant Martin Castillo, you were you initially turned that down, right? What was the main reason for that? Well, I couldn't do it because I was working on, on films and I was doing the thing that I needed to be doing for, you know, I was walking around. I just finished doing the ballad of Gregorio Cortez and I was walking around with it, playing it in theaters for free. You know, so people could see these kind of movies, and because um, there had never been an American hero, yeah, a Latino or Chicano hero, ever, ever, ever. ever. <laughs> so this was the first one. It was the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. I highly recommend for people. Criterion has it out now, and if you have their channel, you can get it there. But you can also. You can you can get it. You can see it. It's now it's been actually it was completely restored by uh, the American uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So anyway, I was doing the ballot, and then I get the phone call from Michael Mann telling me asking me if I'd like to be part of, of Miami Vice, and I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. No one did. It was just they had just started to film it, and they were into the fourth episode. And they needed to replace uh, Gregory Sierra, who was playing the lieutenant then. And, and he wanted to know if I would replace him. And, and I said, no, I can't. I, I'm working. <laughs> I'm working. And I wish I could, but I can't. And he said, oh, man. And he offered me a lot of money. I said, I wish I could do it because basically I could use the, the, the financial gains because I don't, I'm not making any money showing my movies for free. And, uh, it, was a, it was a really humble movie we made it for 1.2 million back in 1981 and it was released in 1983 and uh so here we are in 1984 and i'm walking around with it and uh um, trying to get people to see it and trying to get my next movie uh started and moving and that was uh a stand and deliver and 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 i and i was looking around and moving around and he calls and he says that and i said no i can't and he says, oh, man, please, I really need your help. And I didn't know him from Adam. And he's calling me directly at my house. I don't even know how I got my phone number. Yeah. But I mean, he, they have a way. <laughs> he did. And he was, so 
I said, thank you, but no, thank you. I hung up the phone about 10 minutes later, he called back and he gave, he offered me more money. And I said to him, listen, Michael, I really appreciate you doing this. And I, I tell you right now, you, you're offering me more money than, than my father made in his entire lifetime. You're offering me to make that in 20 episodes. In one year of working on your series, I will make more money than my father had made in his entire life working every damn day. You know, that was, it's like, you, you don't quite understand it. You know, and then, what are you talking about? Now, I remember I had done Zoot Suit. I had done um, Wolfen. I had done Blade Runner. I had done Zoot Suit the movie. I had done Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. So I was moving. I was really strong at that moment in time. And I said, listen, Michael, I, I really appreciate you. And, and I really think that you're a brilliant filmmaker. And I, but what are you going to be doing when, uh, uh, next year? And he says, well, I'm going to be doing Miami Vice. I said, yeah, but what else? He goes, well, i got a movie i got to do called Manhunt. Oh, Manhunt, yeah, it's about Hector, Hannibal Lecter. Like, oh, I, I, didn't know who, I didn't know who Hannibal Lecter was even. And I said, oh, okay, so you're going to go off and do your movie, and I'm going to be stuck there doing Miami Vice. And I said, this is the reason I, I had to tell Bochco, Steve Bochco, when he wanted me to be on uh, NYPD Blue. Or, and when people offered me uh, reoccurring roles on television, I, I couldn't take them because they wanted you to sign a five- to seven-year contract. And at that time in my life, I was trying to do these movies, these little movies that weren't going to be made by anybody else. And I had already hit a grand slam by doing Zoot Suit. And Zoot Suit gave me the Tony nomination, gave me critical acclaim around the world. And I was really, really strong in understanding my craft. And people wanted me and needed me. And uh, they were asking for me. I didn't even have to audition. I haven't auditioned since 1978. And that's that's wonderful, you know, for me. But also, it's wonderful to know that the, the, you've created an environment that people need your help. Okay, yeah, so that they wanted that you're you know, you're a hot item. People want to turn around. And by, when you mean by con like contract, you mean exclusive, I guess, right? Like they wanted you to just be Miami Vice, right? Exclusively, and, and so did so did Gachko and NYPD Blue the what, years before, and and Hill Street Blues, and all these other these shows that they wanted me to perform in to be a regular. And, and but it, you signed contracts for like seven years. Yeah, I mean, and then you know. It's really crazy. So you so miss out me, on some major uh, stuff. Yeah. To me, it, it was like uh, ended, ended up being that I said, I can't because I, I, I can't. I got things I got to do. You're doing your things. I cannot sign an exclusive contract with NBC. I cannot. And, and, and more than that, Michael, I, I have I need creative control of my characters because I, I, I'm creating right now things that I've not been seen before. And uh, if you just watch, you know, Blade Runner, if you watch Wolfin, if you watch Zoot Suit, you're going to see the kind of work that I'm doing in the Battle of Gregorio Cortez. Uh, you know, I'm, I, it's not that I don't want people to tell me the character, tell me what to do. That has nothing to do with it. It has to do with me being able to say in, at the end, this is how I want to do this. And that the decision, the final decision is mine. Okay. And that's impossible to get. Okay, you just don't get it. And I and I understand it. I mean, a writer writes something, a director's directing, and they want their vision. Okay, I got it. I got it. So that's why I had to learn how to write. I had to learn how to produce and to do all that because I didn't want to put people through this, you know. So anyway, I said I can't and I hung up. 
he called back and says, offering me more money. And I said, Jesus, Lord, if I only would have realized that all I had to do is say no, they would keep on raising the price. You know, <laughs> and I would have kept on, I would start saying no a long time ago. And I said, no, Mikey, I tell you again, I cannot sign an exclusive contract and I, and I need creative control. And I know that it's, I'm not asking you for it. I know you can't give it to me. You can't tell me that I have uh, a non-exclusive contract because we're signing a contract with NBC. With NBC, yeah. Not with you, it's with NBC. And I got that. So I'm sorry, man. I, if you need me for a couple of episodes, I'm your man. I'm here for you. But as far as signing a contract, I can. So I hung up again. That's the third time. Third the time. He calls back and he says, uh, you got it. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you got it. You got a non-exclusive contract. I just need you to tell me 60 days before you need to leave. And you have to then come back as soon as you're done. I okay. Said, That's so Right. I mean, that sounds good. Yeah, I said, that sounds really good. I need, I need 30, 60 days to work on a, on a character. So if somebody needs me for a part, you know, I, I need to have time to, to work on the character. So then he says, and you have creative control. I couldn't believe it came out of his mouth. I said, well, okay, Mike, you got me, checkmated me. And I'll take the last amount of money that you offered me. <laughs> yeah, right. There. <laughs> Make sure they give you the first, the, the last amount, not the first one. That's that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and so that's what we did, and so we went off to work, and and the rest was history. So I know we're going to get into Lalif in a second. Um, I wanted to talk about representation. Obviously, we're Hispanic Heritage uh, Month. Um, I had I had spoken with Eli Vasquez, who's one of the you know finalists in that uh, Afro Latino inclusive uh, inclusion in the in Lalif. And I had given him some numbers and, you know, because we make up like 19% of the population here in the United States and, and especially in the film industry, we, we make up about 29% of all moviegoers that go well, to the theater. It's more than that. It, it's probably more than that by that. These yeah. are like, I think, 2019 uh, statistics. Well, so the, it just the, the, the critical statistics on, 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 on the census, yeah. we're more than 20% of the population. We're more than 20%. And I think we're more like 23 to 25 percent. Oh, you mean in total population? Yeah. Yeah. And we make up 32 percent of all box office in the United States. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Out of every, you know, one out of every three people that go to the movies is Latino. So it basically increased by what three, three, four percent as far yeah. as on, on both statistics. That's great. The thing that bothers me about that statistic is you just made it seem like it went higher. It did. We still account for only like five point four percent of like lead roles and like uh, directors and like even in the the back end, you know, editors and writers. Like, why do you feel that's the case? And do you see kind of like an uptick maybe in the last couple of years? I haven't seen an uptick, but I have seen a lot more participation because there's so many more people and there's so many more movies being made because of uh, streaming. And uh, so that there are more people being used, but there's still the percentage of usage of people that you see on screen, especially the big screen and the and television. We're, we're less, uh, they, they say now we're 7%, but uh, okay, I'll use the numbers that I read most recently, which was like yesterday. The day before yesterday, and I'll use that as seven percent of the of the images you see on film and television are are uh, Latino. 
I think it's less than five. I don't agree with the number of 7%. I don't either. I don't either. Yeah. But they, they put it out there, okay? And I said, okay, all right. That's what you think, okay. But, hey, we're 20%, 25% of the population. Yeah. We're 32% of the people who go to the movies, okay? We should, and, the, and, the, and the African-Americans are 12% of the population, and they're 17% of, of the images we see on film and television. 17 that's more that's really that they should be that's 17. a really disproportionate number yeah, yeah we're seven percent in the africa and the the asian americans are like a half a percent yeah the indigenous are also a half a percent which is really unfair that is so unfair i can't even tell you that it, it, that's why we have so much that we're doing with uh, indigenous and, and asian and african uh, filmmakers and in La Leaf, we really, really are pushing all of the boundaries and then creating the opportunity for them to make their movies. So we're, we have thousands of dollars that we give every year now. There used to be five filmmakers used to be able to make their movies. Now we're up to 10. And oh, that's amazing. Hopefully this next year, there'll be 15. And right now there's Afri African, uh, Latino, uh, filmmakers and and then there's uh, the the latest five that came on board are um, indigenous Asian Latinos. Oh, that's an that's a you know, that's a category we're addressing. We have a panel, and everybody who we talk to about the Asian Latino and indigenous panels that are going to be taking place next week, they all say the same thing. I just we've never heard of it. We I, there's nobody talking about. Asian Latinidad, oh, yeah. indigenous Latinidad. No, that that's what inspired me. Believe it or not, when I went there. Um, there was like, what is it? 50% of all the creators that were there were Latinas, which was amazing. Like it was women. women. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And then we had the indigenous inclusion and then the Afro Latino inclusion. And just to see the representation on both sides of that was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I was in tears like the second day when I was sitting there watching all of them come out, you could see the joy and like the passion in their eyes watching their films on the big screen where like nobody else would have given them that opportunity. So it's, I mean, it's absolutely amazing that you guys have provided that with La Leaf and you know, that it's going to be going for, I already got the newsletter where it's already happening already. So oh, yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. getting ready for next year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the like, process all year long. To me, La Leaf is the Los Angeles Latino international film festival was created by, uh, by Marlene Dermer. Um, uh, uh, George Hernandez, Kirk Whistler, and myself, the four of us, back in 1998, okay? And it was Kirk and myself who were working together, and, and George and Marlene were working together, and then we teamed up together, and then we started, and it, it took off. And it's become, and it is the, 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 the strongest Latino film festival in the world. And, and it's, we used to bring in, like, Filmmakers from all over the world, Latinos, Ibero-America, and brought bring to Los Angeles with their movies. And we would give out awards and do the whole thing. And it was just like a very high-end, very strong international film festival. But then we, we stopped for three and a half years while we developed the Youth Cinema Project. <laughs> We had, we, started, we had started in 2003 with uh, uh, Polo, 
And uh, he was the first instructor that we got that wanted to teach kids film. And we, we backed him and, and it was 2003 and he came in and he, and he got started. And then we went and now here we are in 2022. And now we have uh, 60 teachers, mentors. We have, uh, we're in 13 school districts in the, in the state of California, over 1600 students learn how to make film from the fourth grade on up. <laughs> Wait, you and said 1600? 1600, yeah. That is insane. Every year we make over 185 films a year. I was there for the for the kids. The 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 YSP has like a special place in my heart because I'm a father of three kids. They're all in the creative arts. One's an actress, the other one does paintings. Um and I was there for for when they were doing the actual uh the shorts and the inclusions for for the kids and amazing to see what they're able to produce on screen at like such a young age. That's insane. Uh, Raphael, you got to remember people are listening to saying, oh, okay, well, you help kids make movies. No, we teach them how to make the movies and then they make the movies. We never touch the cameras. We never touch the sound systems. We never touch the editing bays. We never touch the, the comp compositions of composing the, their, their, uh, one sheets, uh, you know, they're every, they do everything. I mean, everything. It, it's, a, it's twice a week we go into the classroom. Two mentors go in and they're real professional filmmakers. They're all graduates from like AFI, USC, you know, uh, New, NYU, uh, you know, all different major, major universities throughout the country. And they're filmmakers, you know, bonafide filmmakers, and, and uh, we pay them real well, the mentors. And they come and they, and they work, you know, a couple hours uh, uh, twice a week with the kids, and they teach them everything. And that's the key. The key is to really understand what's happening. And not just, and it starts off with a story. They sit around the table, you know, there's 30 kids, they break them into groups of six at each table, and then they all tell their story, a two-sentence story, you know. A little boy came across the, the river with his grandmother, and the grandmother couldn't get across, but the little boy made it. And then he was there for a couple of weeks, and then went back to look for his grandmother and couldn't find her, and then went back across the river again. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this per this little kid experienced this story. Yeah, he knows something. <laughs> yeah, you start to see the stories that they that they're thinking about, and then they start to put them into. They learn how to write a synopsis. They learn how to write the treatment. Then they learn how to write the script. And each one of them writes a script. And so, at the same time that they're learning how to write the scripts and do that, they're learning about cameras. They're learning about the sound system. They're learning how to produce, how to direct, how to do makeup, how to do uh, um, you know all of the stuff that you do in that film. They learn it all, including location scouting and and everything. They've got to do it all. Okay, then they that's the first half of the semester. The the second semester they start to make their movies. And they post-produce their movies. So they actually film them. And they we never touch the cameras, man. The, the so, wait, so everything that's taking place that I that saw? Doing by then, everything you saw was done by 10-year-old kids on up. 
Oh, that is fifth grade amazing. Kids, fifth grade kids, sixth grade, seventh, eighth, ninth, all the way to high through high school. And, and now the, our kids are going from high school into college, through pathways, into college. Colleges are looking for these kids and saying, hey, we want your kids, the ones that have been in this program. We want them to come to our school and to give them full scholarships. And, you know, it's crazy how much it, it helps. And what it does for the children is unbelievable. It inspires them to have self-esteem, self-respect, self-worth. And it inspires them to use critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity. And with those four elements inside of them at the age of 10, 9, 10 years old, from that moment on, they may never become filmmakers. That's not the objective. The objective is to give them a love for learning. So we want to make them lifelong learners. And that's how you do it, by giving them stuff to learn that they really, really devour. Because you should see them in the classroom. I mean, it's crazy how much they, they just love this section. Whenever Twice a week when this 90 minutes comes up and they have to go and make their movies, they are so happy. And all during the, the week, they're preparing their movies. <laughs> so when te the, the teachers come in, the mentors come in, they're ready to, to move forward. And it's, it's great. It just the kids change. Oh, they, the character changes immensely. Uh, they, they learn how to speak English and Spanish. They, they're bilingual. Everybody is, is like, it's, it'll make you cry. It makes people cry when they see what's going on in those classrooms. There was a lot of people. Look, I was, I was there. It was a, uh, the Saturday is when I was there. And they were having a lot of, um, I think it was like the animated shorts and things of that nature. And just to see their eyes like light up. Like even in the hall, when they were in the lobby and they were waiting for them to, you know, for them and their parents to go inside these shorts. I mean, they were so hyped up. I've never seen when I grew up like that wasn't a thing. Like you didn't really have those type of opportunities. If I had gotten the opportunity to do that at 10 years old. That's crazy. Forget it. Forget it. I, I'd be like a David Lean or I'd be, you know, forget about Scorsese and. <laughs> and all these other right? guys. <laughs> it would have been through the roof. I think it actually breaks down, uh, you know, kind of like the, some of the stigmas that we have in the community, because I know a lot of a lot of parents want their kids to play it safe, you know, be doctors, oh, be yeah. lawyers. Be, oh, yeah. No, no, I get, it. I get it. I get yeah. it. I get it. But you see, to be a great doctor, to be a great lawyer, to be a great anything, you have to have the discipline. OK, how do you structure that discipline? What? inspires you to, to get that discipline. I got it through baseball, but you can't get it when you go to school and you're learning history, geometry, yeah, the generics. mathematics. You, yeah. know, you don't get inspired. You're learning. You're sitting there going, oh. <laughs> Just, you don't get it. Sponging. This, this is so creative yeah. process that it affects their math. It affects their social studies. It affects their English. It affects everything else because they're dealing with communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and creativity. So those things are, boom. Now they're talking and they look at you right in the eyes. It's yeah. a difference, man. You walk into the class before they start the, the session, these sessions, and they can't even look at you. They're 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 humble. They're most of them are you know kids that shy introverts. Yeah, well, they're yeah. in the fourth grade, and the fourth grade is really difficult because if you didn't 
if you weren't reading up to a third grade level and you get passed on to the fourth grade, you don't feel very confident. At all. At all. And the third grade's hard because the first and second grade are kind of easy. You kind of like going to school. It's fun. You be with all your friends and they teach you stuff and it's all great. Third grade, you really start getting into reading and writing. Yeah. And you get into to much more sophisticated understanding. Intense grammar, things of that yeah, nature. Especially every, now and now in this day and age, they're doing stuff in third grade completely right. wild so, out. If you're not if you're not leaving the third grade understanding everything that they've taught you, the fourth grade is gonna be really, really difficult. You're gonna be scared, you don't want to go into it. And that's what the problem is. When when you if you don't read up to a third grade level and you've moved into the fourth grade, you start to fall back by the fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade. You, you want to get out of school. You don't want to go to school anymore. You feel embarrassed. You become a troublemaker. And so basically, self-esteem, self-respect, self-worth is infused in them. They have creativity, collaboration, communication, and create and, and the critical thinking. They're, they're by the end of the fourth grade, man, they come out of that, that classroom. And they're ready for the fifth grade. Yeah, want to go to the fifth grade, and, and they, they they want to take the class more more film classes, you know, not to become filmmakers like I said before, it's to become storytellers. Story yeah, there's a big difference between the two. Oh, a lot of people don't get that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of people making films. There's a lot of different people now. You know, a lot of people not making stories though. Stories right. stories are very powerful. Very. So. If somebody wanted to join like the YCP, like what would be the steps that they would have to do that? Well, if they if they want to come in as, as a mentor, you have to to apply. If you want to come in as and bring it to your school, then you have to call uh, the board of the superintendent of your school system and say, "We got to get this thing into our schools here." You okay, know? and they they have money for it. They have the money. Oh, they definitely do. Oh, man, they have the money to do this. You know, they, they say, well, we're cutting out art and we're cutting out, you know, different things and, and, and we don't have the money. No, they have the money. It's how they spend it. And they got to really understand it. And it's not that expensive. I mean, yes, it costs money, but it's not, it doesn't break the bank. Yeah, I think a lot of these places spend it on football teams and sports yeah, and exactly. things of that nature. Yeah, they don't, they don't really spend it on the arts. Right. It's a shame on that. I know that my school, the high school that I went to, they started cutting a lot of arts programs because they put it all out, all into you know the football team, which sucked, by the way. Yeah. They weren't that great. So the least they could have done is raised the next generation of storytellers. <laughs> Maybe if they would be if they would have had our, us around, then they could have done it. I have a question. Uh, advice for anybody pursuing a career in this industry. What would that be? Do it. We need your help. All right. Now. I mean, right. do it. I mean, it's very simple. Any, any aspect of it. You want to be an actor, you want to be a producer, you want to be a director, you want to uh, be a cinematographer or a sound person, you want to be in front of the camera, behind the camera, you do it. We need storytellers. We need writers. We need people. And you say, well, you know, can I really do that and make a living? Yes, you yes. can. Yes. Yeah. A beautiful living. I know people who make a very good living. 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 Yeah. Great living. But you have to have discipline enough to make yourself do the things you love to do when you don't feel like doing it. If you don't have that discipline, don't even begin to get into the arts, any art, music, uh, painting, dancing, whatever it is you think. I mean, even sports. You were talking any about sports. Sport, you, you can't sport. really do you it. You got to do it every day. Every yeah. day. You have to have that discipline. You know, so that's it. And, and I, so I say someone wants to get into the business of making storytelling with film and television or in theater, 
jump on in, man. There's plenty of room and there's lots of money. And and if you come in chasing fame and fortune, you're going to lose. Yeah, big time. Okay. But if you're coming in to be the best that you can be in whatever it is that you choose to do, whether it be an actor or director or producer, uh, stage manager or, you know, assistant director or, you know, gaffer, electrician, a sound person, you will be. You went through the whole, you went through the whole team. That's it, man. You got to, you got to go through the whole team, man. There's so many positions and so much that can be done. And people have to realize that that's a great profession. Very cool. Well, Mr. Almost, thank you so much for joining us today. If people wanted to like follow you personally or, or even upcoming information about La Leaf, where would they go? Uh, to La Leaf. And, and you know, go online and I'm, I'm on there. Everybody's on there. La Leaf, Los Angeles Latino International Film Festival, or the Youth Cinema Project, which is all part of that structure, or the Latino Film Institute. That's yeah. the mothership. That's the mothership. Latino Film Institute. You go there, you see all the branches of the different things that we do. Animation, we do films, we do like, you know, everything. It's really wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much. Again, appreciate your time. Extremely humbled. I I thank you for spending the time with us. Guys, if you're watching this interview, make sure that you keep paying attention to our Revolucion Hispanic Heritage virtual event brought to you by Todo Wafi and presented by Celso. Be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Todo Wafi and Make sure you follow the 30-day celebration on www.thewafi.com. I'm Rafael. That's Mr. Olmos. And we are out. Estando allá afuera Porque para mí, mira, no existen fronteras Yo levantaré mi bandera